Have you been to the place where the fireweed grows? The caribou roam and the northern lights glow. Come learn from the people who call this place home. This is to 9360. Welcome to Denali 360. I am your host Nova and today my guest is Tom Walker who has lived in Alaska for over five decades. He is a nature photographer, author, and freelance writer. You may have read some of his articles published in Alaska Magazine, Field and Stream, Reader's Digest, Newsweek, Audubon, and other regional and national publications. In addition, he's been a wildlife conservation officer, a wilderness guide, lock home builder, and a journalism professor. When I asked some locals about Tom, they gave many rave reviews. Here are some quotes. One said, he is an incredibly knowledgeable naturalist and has amazing experiences to share from his photography. Another told me, you used to be a rodeo rider. I also learned that you collected World War II stories from a local resident, Bill Nancaro, who was in the Battle of the Bulge, and that you can find that interview in New Orleans. And finally, a friend said, he is a gifted author. You know when you read his books, his facts are accurate. Well, so welcome, Tom Walker. It's an honor to have you as our guest today. Well, thank you. <laughs> Some pretty glowing reviews, so I feel yeah. pretty honored to have you as a guest today. Well, I spread around a few bucks to everybody to make sure they said good things. So. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, your money was well spent. Yes, it was, yeah. <laughs> so today we're going to talk a little bit about the park, history of the park, yes? Yes. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is people come here and they have preconceived notions of what the park is like. Mm -hmm. And they have high expectations of seeing a bear or seeing the mountain. And you can't blame them for that because <laughs> that's what all of the advertising is. They show <laughs> pictures of the mountain and they show pictures of a bear and said, come to Denali. And they've even, there have even been a lot of pictures published of the mountain with a bear in front of it. Mm -hmm. So they think they're going to see both. <laughs> but unfortunately, what happens here is we have bad weather sometimes. Not that often, but enough that you don't get to see the mountain. And if you're unlucky, you don't get to see a bear. And they go away a little disappointed. And I think that's unfortunate because the actual origins of the park have their antecedents in the Klondike Gold Rush of 1898. Mm -hmm. And those were Jack London stories. And those were Robert Service poems. And they were exciting times. And some of the people that were here and responsible for the park or settled in the park area or helped build infrastructure here were all veterans of those early gold stampedes. And the history of the park in itself is quite fascinating. And I think uh, more people would find more interest if they spent a little time and just looked at the people that were the pioneers of the place. Absolutely. Share with us some of the pioneers. Well, one of the actual sparks for the establishment of the park was in 1903. Judge Wickersham, a federal judge, uh, attempted to climb Mount McKinley, which was what Denali was called at the time. Mm -hmm. And on his way through, uh, en route to the mountain, he did a little prospecting. And they looked for gold and 
two moose, two bull moose creek is what it was called. And they found a little bit and they made some claims. And as everybody did in that era, they went back and publicized their finds so that it would develop a stampede and that would further explore the area for the gold wealth or mineral riches and then possibly increase the value of their claims. Well, their claims were largely worthless, but it brought all these people into the area and one thing led to another. They discovered all the wildlife. They discovered how fabulous the hunting was. They, that attracted in turn some rich sportsmen from the East Coast, one of which was Charles Sheldon. Mm -hmm. And it was his efforts when he came here and fell in love with the place that eventually ended up in the establishment of the park in uh, 1917. And the, the act establishing the park was signed just days before the American involvement in World War One, and if if the war would have started a little earlier, who knows if there would have even been a park? Wow, I'm not even sure I knew all that. Tell me a little bit about people talk about Charles Sheldon' love for uh, the doll sheep and wanting to protect them. He was an early day naturalist, a friend of Theodore Roosevelt, and he was connected to the East Coast establishment. And at that time, we had a different notion of hunting and what being a naturalist meant. And there was a lot of, of, of collecting of animals for scientific study. And his, one of his major expeditions was to the Yukon Territory, where he collected and shot and killed a lot of stone sheep. And they were shipped back to the Smithsonian and the Natural History Museum. And, and another uh, museum where they were studied and the determination of their species and what they were was uh, determined. So then his next expedition was to Alaska, to the Kantishna, where the gold strike had been, to collect doll sheep to study the comparison between the two and see if they were related. And so, so that's how he actually came here but he was a very thoughtful man. He was uh, independent, independently wealthy. He had gotten rich in the uh, silver mining and being a railroad general manager, and he retired in his 30s. And he was very thoughtful, very, very intelligent man. And everything from the flowers to the mountain to the songbirds to the sheep, everything enthralled him and he really loved them. And so he made this connection, and that's where the impetus came from for the park to be established. For our guests who are not familiar with the area, Kantishna is in the heart of Denali National Park. Please correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but the park itself in size is equivalent to roughly six Grand Canyons. Through the six million acres of wilderness runs one road that's roughly 93 miles. Where that road ends is this area we're talking about called Kantishna. Do you feel that's a good description? Yes, it is. And one of the more obvious comparisons is that it's the size of Switzerland. I it's a huge, huge area. And there's just this one tiny road into it. So people actually see very little of it. And the original park was expanded in 1980. And that's where the... Uh, 
additions were made onto the original park. In the actual boundaries of the original park, the mountain was two-thirds outside of the park. Okay. So only with the 1980 additions was it included. And the reason why it didn't include all of the mountain was because the only thing they were interested in when they established it, established it was the protection of wildlife habitat and the wildlife within it. So they took the prime wildlife habitat, and that's what they used as the boundaries for the park. And I think a lot of people today come to see our big five, our bear, moose, caribou, doll sheep, wolves. And then, of course, we have folks to come see everything from our bird species to smaller mammals. Uh, it seems like it's a playground for every naturalist, botanist, scientist that wants to see things still in their natural habitat, which we don't really get to see as much in other places, it doesn't seem. And one of the glories of it, I think, too, is its undeveloped nature. There, there's been a lot of uh, modernization over the last 10 years or so, but still, for most uh, other parks in comparison, it has very few trails. And uh, one of the great thrills of the park is individual discovery. Mm -hmm. Just going off the road, going off, uh, looking for whatever you wish to find. I remember a few years ago, I was hiking out near Wonder Lake and just going through the uh, tundra and over a little pass. And I came upon a set of locked moose antlers. And two bull moose the previous uh, fall had been in combat and their antlers had locked together. They couldn't get apart and they succumbed. And just finding those remains on the tundra and not being directed anywhere to see them or not being told that they were over there was such a thrill. And there are a lot of uh, discoveries to be made like that today. You can uh, go on some tundra ridge and walk along and you can find an antler, a caribou, or maybe in the forest find the antler of a moose. Or as I did uh, just last summer, walk along a riverbed and find the skull of a fox. Mm. And those kinds of individual discoveries are one of the real thrills of this place. So Tom, you've done a lot of amazing photography in your time and come across a lot of fascinating sites, natural sites. I'm anxious to hear if there's something that is maybe your favorite that you saw. We were just talking about the things that you stumble across when you're seeing nature and it's not pointed your way. Is there one picture that you took that was just breathtaking to you in what you experienced or witnessed? Can I think about that a minute? Absolutely. For those of you that don't know Tom Walker, uh, Please take a look at all the amazing books that he has authored, but one in particular that I enjoy is called Denali Journal. And in that book, he witnesses a lot of occurrences that he comes across as he's hiking, as he's out photography with his doing, making his photography, shooting his pictures, uh, as he's out camping. And it's fascinating to read some of the experiences that he's had in person. Uh, and be able to have him share his experiences with you in only the way that he can narrate it. The one event that really struck me as 
truly amazing and somewhat mind-boggling was once I was out in the park and watched a wolf moving along the road using the edge of the road as cover. And it was moving along just about like a cat would stalk a mouse. And then after it had turned one corner in the road, I could see ahead up on the hillside, maybe, oh, 100, 150 yards above the road on quite a steep hillside, there were three or four sheep. And the doll sheep are some of the principal prey of wolves. And that wolf went along there. How he even knew the sheep were there, I'm not sure, unless he had seen them earlier and then came back away from there and then went back when I saw him stalking. And he came to a little gully and he started up the gully again like a cat, moving very carefully, all hidden and using all of the plants and the rocks and everything for cover. And then just about the time you would think he would make a dash at the sheep, they must have seen him, seen his pat, his back uh, over the top of a bush or a rock, and they bolted, and they went straight up the hill and over the top and were gone. And you could see the sheep, or I mean the wolf, continue along just very slowly for a few yards and then stop and sit down like, he gave up. Oh, well, they saw me, and this didn't work. But the amazing part of that was just above him and just about on the same level as where the sheep were, another wolf came out of the rocks and came down to him. And they had some way, and how I don't know, conceive this plan that we'll split up, you go one way, I'll go the other way, and we'll get the sheep in a pincer movement, and they can't escape us. But the sheep saw that first wolf a little bit before they could institute the, their plan. And I was, I've always been amazed by that and other wolf chases I've seen where there's this cooperation between the animals that is so well devised that you think that they sat down, had a talk, okay, this is plan A, this is plan B, we'll do it this way. But how they communicate that is a mystery to me without a verbal communication, but... I've seen that in the park and one other time and have read accounts of it. It's still a, a miraculous event. Wow. We'll take a brief break and we'll be back with the Pioneer Stories by Tom Walker. This episode of Denali 360 is sponsored by Tonglin Lake Lodge. Tonglin Lake Lodge exemplifies the authentic guest experience in Alaska. Savor and enjoy Denali from the solitude of our five private acres located just seven miles from the entrance to Denali National Park. Escape the crowds and relax in the warmth and charm of your own Alaskan-style luxury cabin 
featuring modern conveniences and amenities. A king-size bed, down comforters, and Egyptian cotton sheets, and a cast iron hearth. Tucked away in the taiga spruce forest, you'll hear the sounds of nature and feel the peace of Alaska's natural world. Our artisan cafe provides a homemade breakfast and on-site bakery in the mornings, along with an evening service of beverages and snacks to enjoy while gathered around the campfire circle. Take a piece of Denali home with you and carry it in your heart. For more information, go to our website, www.tonglinlake.com. We are back with Tom Walker. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of the park. Let's talk about pioneers of the park, Tom. When visitors arrive here, they visit the, the park visitor center, which is located at the entrance to the park by the railroad depot. And this is an area right above Riley Creek. And Riley Creek was the locus of activity in the early years of the park development. The original park headquarters was located on Riley Creek. There was a roadhouse on the bluff by the railroad depot where the railroad depot is today. And the construction of the railroad bridge is what brought a lot of the pioneers from the gold rush era here to work. It was like any kind of uh, construction boom, like the Alaska, Trans-Alaska pipeline construction boom, or the development in North Dakota in the shale, oil shale fields. Uh, it brought people in search of work. And so a lot of people came here to work on the railroad, finish the railroad, which was completed in 1923. And they worked on the railroad, and then after the railroad construction, a lot of them stayed on and helped build the park road. And almost all of these people were from uh, the era of the Klondike Gold Strike. And they were men that had worked the claims, dug in the gravels, dealt with the extreme cold weather, and they were inured to hand labor because a lot of the road was built by hand. There were segments where there was no other way to build it but with pick and shovel. And they were out there and they didn't think much of it because that's what you did in that era, is if you wanted to eat, you worked. <laughs> we had no social security, we had no Medicare, we had no unemployment insurance, we had none of those things. And it literally was a matter of work or starve. And those people were willing to work and they got out there and worked. But of course, all of that was seasonal work. So in the wintertime, a lot of them were trappers. They trapped fur in the area. There were several trap lines in the Nanana River Valley here that uh, those men ran. And that was to supplement the money they made in the summer working on the railroad. And there were some really interesting characters. There was this fellow by the name of Hobo Bill Dickinson who worked on the road crew. And in the wintertime, he lived in a tar paper shack up by the Healy River Bridge. And he lived very hand to mouth, didn't do much in the winter. And one of the road crew foremen said that after a summer working on the road crew, which provided room and board, he had gained 100 pounds. <laughs> and of 
course, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, I'm sure, but you could see what he was getting at is he didn't eat very well in the winter, but when somebody else cooked, he was going to make sure he got his share. I'm not sure that's different now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There there were a lot of characters like that that lived here. And another one that uh, was kind of a, intriguing was this guy by the name of William Allman. And William Allman was supposedly a remittance man. And a remittance man, the term we don't use much today, was a very common occurrence in that era. Uh, they were usually the sons of very wealthy people. And the, the father would send the boy off for some reason and paying, uh, pay him uh, money, a remittance, to stay away from home. And so William Allman was a remittance man from England who was living here at the park and working on the Alaska Road Commission crew that was building the park road. And he supposedly one winter in a hurry went down by Horseshoe Lake and built a cabin. In the following spring, he approached the uh, foreman of the road crew and asked for some dynamite. And the foreman said, uh, what do you want this dynamite for? And he said, uh, well, I have a stump in the middle of my cabin and I want to blow it up and get it out of the cabin. <laughs> and he, the foreman, uh, Pete Bagoy, looked at him like he was crazy and said, I'm not giving you any dynamite for that. But uh, Allman supposedly begged him and said, look, I'm a former British Army officer. I know all about explosives. And so uh, Bagoy said, okay, here's one stick of dynamite. So uh, Allman goes away, and a little while later, Bagoy hears this tremendous explosion down at Horseshoe Lake. And, and Allman had succeeded in blowing his entire cabin up. <laughs> if you walk on the Horseshoe Trail today, and when you get down by the foot trail uh, that goes by the outlet, you walk right across a cabin berm, which is the only cabin berm that's ever been found down there. And that's likely the site of Allman's cabin. And not too long ago, an archaeologist working here in the park found William Allman's watch. It was pretty broken up, oh and uh, you could see in the watch his name inscribed in the front and back of the of the watch. Oh my goodness! And another another common uh, activity here in those early days was uh, um, moonshine <laughs> uh, making. There were. Uh, as, as the rest of the country, there was a prohibition uh, about alcohol consumption. And Alaska actually had a, a prohibition against alcohol use long before the uh, Olmstead Act that outlawed, outlawed it in the lower 48. And this was for the, supposedly the protection of the native people who were being given alcohol by unscrupulous traders and others. And so, so Alaska was dry before the rest of the, the country. But of course, there were a lot of people that didn't like that. So homebrew, moonshine, and bootlegging was a big activity. 
and there was several bootleggers in the Denali, or then the Mount McKinley area and Riley Creek. And one of them actually was killed in a gunfight with marshals. John Bernard was his name. They went to break up his still, or the still of uh, John, John Sullivan, and there, there was a shooting, and the man was killed in that. Uh, Michael Sullivan, excuse me. Michael Sullivan still, and there was a shooting involved, and John Bernard was killed. And it made headlines all over Alaska. Moonshine can now get you killed. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about naming the area Mount McKinley, the mountain, versus Denali. Well, the the original name for it was Denali. That was a Tanana native name that means the high one. And that's what the early missionary Hudson Stuck championed for the name of the mountain. He wanted to be called Denali. But the uh, champion of the silver standard at the time was um, William McKinley, who eventually became president. And one of his supporters, a prospector, um, saw the mountain and named it for McKinley. And of course, the way things worked in those days, the native names, the local names were often overlooked to be named for some prominent white person, and even if they were in some far off distant place. So it became Mount McKinley. And not many people were happy with that for a long, long time except politicians from Ohio. They loved it because that, that was their native son, William McKinley. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until the park was expanded in 1980 that it became, the name for the park was changed to Denali National Park instead of Mount McKinley National Park. But the name of the mountain stayed the same, again, for political reasons. And finally, in uh, the, during the Obama administration, the name was changed to its original native name, Denali, which for some people is still controversial because they want it called McKinley still. Hmm. I'm fascinated, and I think the viewers are too, on people that live here year-round. I think for so many people, they come to visit, they think of it as a seasonal destination from May to September, and they're somehow surprised that people live here year round. So I think one of my first questions is what brought you to Denali to begin with and how did it become your year round residence? My first year here was 1969. On July 4th, I came rattling in over the Denali Highway because in that era, there was no Parks Highway. You had to drive on the Richardson Highway, then all the way out to Denali Highway, a hundred and whatever it is, 30 or 40 miles, and then from there into the park. And I had arrived on July 4th, only having sustained one flat tire. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> and I drove out in the park in the middle of a snowstorm. And it, and by the time I got to uh, Sable Pass, there was about a foot of snow on the ground on the road on July the 4th. 
And that day, according to my journal, I wrote it down as I saw it. I saw 1,400 large mammals, mostly sheep and most, mostly caribou, and secondly, uh, several bands of sheep. But 1,400 animals all in a day. Three, three grizzly bears were part of that total. Um, one moose and several foxes. That's the most record day total I've ever had. But, of course, seeing all of that and being a wildlife guy, I was hooked. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know, I've, I've been many, many places in Alaska, but there's just some connection here. Sense of place, you know the place, you look out and see familiar things, you have familiar memories, you remember interesting people, interesting events. I just hooked on it, I guess. And the winters, they can be trying, long and dark, uh, but so is winter everywhere in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And for a few years when my daughter was young, I lived down on the coast near Homer while she finished school. And uh, it would rain in January. And I would rather be here at 20 below <laughs> than there at 40 above in rain in January. <laughs> Perfect. So I'm a huge fan of your books and your photography. So for our folks that are listening, that I would like them to get hooked on your work. Yeah. I know that you're a very modest man, so forgive me for asking. But if somebody is interested in looking more into your books that you have authored or uh, seen your photography and your fine art, is there a place that our listeners can go to online to find your work? I have a website under my name, Tom Walker Photography, and I would recommend one of two books, uh, The 70 Mile Kid, which is a history book, the story of the, of the real leader of the first ascent of Mount McKinley, now Denali. And then I had a new book published last year called Wild Shots, mm -hmm. and I would recommend that as well. Wild shots. So both of those happen to be my favorite. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. So if you have a chance to follow Tom Walker, please uh, follow his website. Take a look at the books that he's authored, the articles he's written. His photography is absolutely stunning and gives you a more vibrant and realistic picture of this area than some general website photos that you might find on on various places. So I urge people to marvel at his art like we the locals here do as well tom one last question if you were giving advice to a visitor coming to denali for the very first time what would you tell them if if i was giving advice to a visitor what i would say would be don't get hooked on your preconceived notions or expectations. There's more to the place than just seeing a bear or seeing the mountain. There are many smaller treasures to seek out, find for yourself. And I would really encourage people not to listen to what other people tell them as a value and find what you would find of value. I can recall a 
trip last year out in the park coming in and there was a fellow on the edge of the road who if you would have looked at him you'd have thought uh, he had stained himself with paint or something but his entire white pants from the backside down to his knees were covered with these big purple blotches and he was smiling like he had won the jackpot and in his hand was a gallon jug of blueberries <laughs> and he'd sat for hours i talked to him sitting on a glorious day on a tundra picking blueberries which grow in profusion here and he was looking out over the majesticness of the valley and all the while listening the sandhill cranes passing overhead and he said he never went more than 50 yards while he picked blueberries and it was the best day of his adult life that's one thing you can do here is find your own glorious moment thank you so much for being my guest today tom thank you nova <laughs> Special thanks to Tom Walker for being our guest on Denali 360 today. Please go to www.tomwalkerphotography.com to find Tom's vibrant Alaska wildlife photos. He's compiled his photos into collections in award-winning photography books. And while you're on his site, browse books he has authored, such as Kantishna, Mushers, Miners, and Mountaineers, The 70 Mile Kid, and his newest book, Wild Shots, a memoir. Thanks so much, Tom, for being our guest. Denali 360 is a production of Denali 360 LLC. Interviews are edited by Josiah Robinson. Theme song written and recorded by Jonathan and Brooke East. Special content and sponsorship recorded by James Rio. I am your host, Nova Cunningham. For more information on Denali Park, Alaska, go to Denali360.com.